This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. When I got that PhD from Stanford, I was the only black man in my building who wasn't a mailman, janitor, or technician. And there's nothing wrong with any of those jobs, but I said, there's something kind of off here. We see you. You matter. You are valuable in this space, whether or not this space tells you that you're valuable. Welcome to Hello PhD podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we talk about concrete steps we can take today to promote diversity and advance racial equity in science. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 142. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Daniel, happy fall. It is fall, and how exciting is that um, the the mosquitoes somehow have finally gotten better around me, which is nice, because I can actually go outside, and it feels like campfire weather, Josh, and you and I actually got together this week, sat many feet apart, and uh, burned some things. Many feet apart, separated by blazing fire, and uh, it was quite delightful. Yeah, it was, it was nice to get together, and it was nice to get outside. Speaking of the fall, Josh... That night, we sampled an Oktoberfest, but tonight, you and I have uh, something slightly fallish. What do we have? All right. I think this beer is perfect for the transition of summer to fall. Uh, that's why I picked this one up, and this is what drew me to this beer. I'm going to go and tell I'll, I'll just go ahead and tell our listeners what we're drinking. This is the Bell's Amber Ale. Many of you probably heard of Bell's. Yeah, we've had the two-hearted ale at least once on the show. Yeah, this is from Comstock, Michigan, and this one's literally just called amber ale <laughs> so you might be asking dan why did josh get this one because i think the other beers i gave you for our next few episodes are kind of fancy and creative and kind of weird but this is just amber ale this one was on sale <laughs> well i thought we could just go go back to basics because i think sometimes you know when i go to the beer store and i'm trying to think of something to get there's so many beers now and they're like fancy cans and crazy ingredients, and it's all like screaming for my attention. I think sometimes we don't need all that. So I thought we could return to the basics. And I can speak for myself. When I was first discovering craft beer in graduate school, it was the Amber Ale was the style of beer that I that really got me into um, enjoying craft beer. I don't know about you, Dan, but it was, it was definitely Amber Ale for me. Yeah, it pulled us away from the lager and the Pilsner. It was, a, it was a beer that looked kind of like a dark beer, but wasn't actually a dark beer. Yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And I don't think of us as old. <laughs> I mean, as we mentioned, we we both hit 40 within the last I do, Josh. So. <laughs> I think of us as very, very old. Uh, but it really was a different time when we started graduate school with regard to beer availability. Now at the university where I am, which is where we went to grad school, I can't throw a rock without hitting a brewery. But back then... It wasn't that way, and you would go to a bar, and there would be on tap Bud Light, Coors Light, Miller Light, <laughs> maybe Yingling, right? But there was this one brewery in town, and they had um, an amber ale that was like, wow, this has flavor. This is uh, good. Uh, so anyway, I wanted to sample this one, Dan, and what do you think of this, this uh, Bell's Amber Ale? I think it tastes exactly like an amber ale. It's a little malty. It's a little caramel, but... I wouldn't say I could pick it out of a lineup of other ales. I'll say I'm really liking this one. I'm pleasantly surprised because I think 
one reason I have drifted away from Amber L's and haven't really returned is over the past few years, I've revisited some Amber L's that I liked at one time in my beer journey, like that Copper Line Amber L. I mean, even a Fat Tire uh, Amber L, which I really liked when I first had it, it just falls flat for me now. But but this has a lot going for it. There's some complexity here. And when I first tasted this, these are the two overwhelming notes that I got. I got toast, and that faded into this this caramel sweetness. So I'm getting toast and caramel. What kind of toast, Josh? Wonder bread, <laughs> rye bread, homemade sourdough, COVID uh, bread? Nature's own honey wheat. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Medium in that the toast. Very descriptive. I, that's what I was after. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this this is what I think is really cool. So, you know, I tasted the beer and I, was, I started jotting down some notes about what it reminded me of. And as I'm apt to do, I went to the Bell's website to pull up the marketing speak. And here's what they said, Dan. They said, Bell's Amber Ale features both toasted and sweet caramel notes. That's exactly what I tasted. That's you pretty good. You must have so proud. <laughs> I was like, wow, it's, it seems very seldom you actually taste what they say you're going to taste. But uh, I did the blind experiment, and there you go. Uh, so anyway, if you enjoy Amber Ales, or, or I think even if you want to um, get into beer, I think this is an approachable beer to try out, see if it's your thing. And should be available everywhere, I would guess. This is not one of our more obscure beers that are tough to find. Yeah, widely available. And I will say also, if you find yourself somewhere um, that there is a dearth of options <laughs> of, of craft beers, but the Bell's Amber Ale is there, you can't go wrong, especially when there's a little bit of uh, chill in the air. All right. Well, thank you for finding it. And thank you for not finding the Budweiser Zero or whatever it's called. I've had a reprieve for I don't know how many weeks now, but I am thankful for that. Yeah, I'm surprised you uh, keep mentioning it. At some point, you'll hope that I forget. But when you least expect it, Dan, I'll, I'll spring it on you. I dodged that bullet. The other thing I'm thankful for, Josh, is for our Patreon patrons and for our friends at Promega. I think last time we mentioned that they have some webinars up. And the one I wanted to just remind everybody of today is the poster presentation webinar. We traveled to Wisconsin. We did a webinar about how to present a poster and specifically a better poster, which is a format that if you haven't heard of it, just type in better poster into your favorite uh, search engine and you will learn about Mike Morrison and about the format of a poster that catches people's attention at your next meeting, which may happen in 2021, and how to bring them in and present your information in a way that is easily digestible and can continue the conversation after you leave the uh, the seminar. So, uh, better poster. You can learn about it uh, at promega.com slash hellophd. All right, Dan. Let's move into our topic of the week. All right, Dan. Uh, this week on the show, I am, I'm really excited to share this interview with a guest that I have really wanted to have on the show for quite some time. I had the opportunity to sit down and talk with Dr. Kenneth Gibbs, who is a director at the National Institute of General Medical Science, or NIGMS, at the National Institutes of Health. And Kenny's a program director who is involved with diversity initiatives uh, funded by NIH. Through that role, I've known Kenny for um, a number of years as someone who is involved in academic diversity programming. And the reason I've wanted to have Kenny on the show for a while is he has a really unique and broad perspective of how we 
in academia are doing with regard to promoting diversity and advancing racial equity, um, at least with regard to academic biomedical research. On, on top of that, now is a great time to talk to Kenny because he recently had an essay published by the American Society for Cell Biology earlier this month. Um, and if you're listening later in the future, that is September 2020, entitled Promoting Diversity and Advancing Racial Equity in the Biomedical Sciences. Dan, I'm excited to share this interview with you and also with our listeners. Yeah, this is a long time coming. We have wanted to have him on the show literally for years, and uh, I'm so excited to hear from him. So let's take a listen. Thank you for having me. And before we get started, I just wanted to make sure it's clear that the views I'm going to express are my own, mainly as a private citizen and not as a federal official. And so the views are my own as a black man who's been in science for a couple of decades and not those of the U.S. federal government. Uh, my name is Kenny Gibbs. I'm a program officer at the National Institute of General Medical Sciences, which is part of the National Institutes of Health. There, I manage uh, research grants in the areas of training, workforce development, and diversity, as well as in uh, basic science in the areas of stem cell biology. I also manage a postdoc program on the NIH campus. And so the program officer part of my job is extramural, meaning NIH funds institutions across the country to do research and training programs. NIH also conducts research itself. And so that's called intramural. And so it's part of the intramural program. I manage a postdoc program um, at the NIH main campus. And then other duties as assigned, given <laughs> that uh, it, there are always uh, new and different things happening. You wrote an article that was published in ASCB earlier this month uh, entitled Promoting Diversity and Advancing Racial Equity in the Biomedical Sciences. Yeah. So I want to just talk to you a little bit about, it was a, a great essay. Thank and you. just in general, what, what led you to, to write this particular piece uh, right now? Thank you for the question. Yeah, there's a lot of things in there. So I talked about my current job. Uh, before I was at the NIH, I actually got my PhD in immunology. Actually, my first job in life was working as a research intern in a physics lab at UNC. In fact, when I was 15. So wow. that was my first job in life. So I've been doing, I've been in the research game for more than 20 years, even though I'm not that old. And so I've gone through a number of different programs to enhance science generally, train the next generation of scientists broadly, as well as programs to promote diversity within the biomedical sciences. Uh, for those who don't know me, I am a black man, uh, descended from enslaved Africans here in America. So my family has been here for hundreds of years. So that's part of my story. And as I went through my training, which was great, I was at, you know, elite institutions publishing papers in great journals. I was running into this internal tension around the reasons that I was interested in doing science and what I saw the scientific enterprise valuing, right? And so I shorthand called this the Tyrosine Tyrone dilemma. And so uh, <laughs> by that, I mean, you know, Tyrosine represents the narrow technical knowledge that is really important in our discipline. And I think that in technical knowledge is critically important, right? Most of the medical treatments and advances we have are predicated on us understanding at a very minute and elegant level how cells and systems and organelles and organisms work, right? I also have a very big emphasis personally on ensuring that my work has a benefit to the community broadly and particularly the black community. I said my 
you know, I'm descended from enslaved Africans. My grandfathers had fourth and eighth grade educations. My parents were able to go to college in the 70s through the support of public investment, things like Upward Bound Program. And then they're able to have me and my sisters go to graduate school. You know, you go from my paternal grandfather had a fourth grade education. I had a PhD from Stanford by the time I was 27, right? And so you can see that arc, but you also can see that when I got that PhD from Stanford, I was the only black man in my building uh, for the five years there who wasn't a mailman, janitor, or technician. And there's nothing wrong with any of those jobs, but I said, there's something kind of off here. And so the last, uh, this article is basically (laughs) what I've been doing the last 10 years since I graduated from my PhD, which is really trying to understand what happened, trying to make the system better um, for all those around us, because there are a number of different issues in the system. There are general issues as it relates to training, long pathways, uncertain career paths. um, And some of those we've worked on at the NIH, um, particularly NIGMS, to create some additional levels of stability. But then on top of those generalized issues, there are issues as it relates to bias, racism, sexism, <laughs> other isms in science that over and apart from a person's ability to contribute to the system are really just pushing folks out of the system, right? A, a piece I, something I mentioned here um, and in talks I've given is just that, you know, three of my friends who are all black women, they went to elite East Coast institutions. They published first author papers in single word journals. And so if you listen to this podcast, I assume you know what that means. <laughs> Two of them had such terrible experiences in grad school. They said, I'll never do science again. One said, I'll do science, and I'll never do, but I'll never do academia. And I thought, excuse me for being colloquial here, I was like, well, that's a damn shame, right? It's a shame for them because they have been brutalized and they have experienced this bias they should not experience. And it's a shame for us because they are publishing at the top of their fields. And if we cannot create a space for them to contribute and be excellent, and be who they are, then we're all losing, right? And so since I finished graduate school, I've made a career in D.C., working on issues of policy, as well as doing some research on these issues around really this question of how do PhDs make career decisions. Sounds esoteric, but, you know, a small number of PhDs have a very large amount of influence on the shape of science, the shape of public health, education, how we think about these things. And so I've done some research, I've done some policy work. And given the social uprising of 2020, um, I was asked to share some thoughts. Actually, I've been asked, I think, two or two or three times a week um, since June to give talks about help us understand these issues. And uh, as we talked before we started recording, given that it's COVID time, they have lots of small children that don't have childcare, <laughs> that don't have school. You, and, you are um, their childcare and their school. I am their childcare. Me and my tenure track wife are their childcare. We've gotten some help recently, but <laughs> very recently. Um, and so I say no to all those talks, but I thought it'd be helpful to point people to something to say, you know, if you're really trying to think critically about this, this is where you start, right? And it's not because you don't need me to actually come and read you a definition of diversity. You have a PhD. You can do that. There are a lot of different things that are out that I've written. I gave a talk on this last year, which I linked to, but I think really that people's attention is focused. I thought it'd be helpful to put some of the ideas that I've seen in life in research and in practice, both in funding grants and running training programs down on paper for those who are really trying to figure out what to do. Because in all these instances, you'll have folks that are about it, ready to, ready to do that work. You have folks that are against it, and they're never going to want to do that work. And that is what it is. But then you have a large number of people who want to try to do the right thing and have come to a realization that they have not fully considered how the enterprise in which they and we all operate treats people 
apart from the quote unquote meritocracy of your ability to to actually do the technical work that our enterprise so values. And so you would say, really, this essay was with them in mind, these these folks who are well-meaning, they want to do something, but they just need a little bit of information or guidance or a little bit of a push or direction to go there. I think it was somewhat with them in mind, but also with, in mind all the trainees from underrepresented groups, the Black, Latina, Latino, Latina, Indigenous folks who reach out to me and share their traumas and experiences with racism and sexism that I can say, hey, like, we see you too, right? Um, so part of it is, hey, you want to do right? Let's do right. But also, I think some of the things I, I wrote were specifically with the idea that we see you. You matter. You are valuable in this space, whether or not this space tells you that you're valuable. And I wanted to make those points clear, too, because sometimes as we have conversations around diversity, um, which, as a quick side note, anybody who works with me knows, I tell people, you know, individuals cannot be diverse. Groups of people can be diverse, right? So I'm a black man. I'm not a diverse scientist. Okay, but... Uh, I was wondering if you were going to say that. I have indeed heard you <laughs> heard you say yeah, that. Yeah, you have, you have indeed heard me, because, like, don't call... You'll be glad to know that I've actually uh, spread that idea and given yeah. you credit for it in my own settings before. And again, I pre- I get it, right? It's America. Condoleezza Rice, 15 years ago, said, you know, the, the twin birth defects are slavery and the genocide of indigenous peoples, right? So we have a hard time talking about these things, right? And I get that people want to say what's right. I actually just last week was having a conversation around the use of the term Latinx because one of my colleagues said, I don't get it. I don't like it. A lot of people I know don't like it. And so I had a whole conversation around that. I was like, oh, that's interesting because then some people were like, call me Latinx and others are saying we're anglicizing our language. So it's just another way of giving, <laughs> ceding power, right? And again, so we're all learning, right? And I share my own examples of ways that I fall fail. So that way people say, hey, even the guy who writes about it doesn't get it perfect. And yet we're still going to go forward, right? And so how are we going to try to move forward? And so, yeah, I think, I forgot where, <laughs> where that started. But the idea being that, that we see you, it's hard, but we still need to, we still need to move forward in thinking about, these, thinking about these, these issues and how, yeah, how we move forward. And that's the point that I was going to make, right? When we talk about diversity, sometimes it's in the span of, really rightly, there's oodles of evidence that diverse teams have better outcomes on hard problems, right? And so when people say, well, what's the, why should we do this? I say, well, why shouldn't you do it, right? Like you, actually the burden of proof's on you to say homogeneity is better than diversity. As it relates to hard problems and science, we solve hard problems. But sometimes when we talk about each of diversity, we'll say, oh, diverse teams lead to better outcomes. So then it can make it sound like I, a black man, am there to make the lives of my white colleagues better. And it's like, I'm there to exist, just like y'all are there to exist. We're all there to exist and contribute. And so part of this is saying, you're there, show up who you, as you are, right? And contribute as you are. That's what this is. That's really what we're trying to get is that a space where you can show up without any barrier and contribute and exist as you are. Recognizing there's difficulty because different people all in the same space, you have to have some shared language and shared norms, but where do those norms come from and what's required of people to opt into those norms? Like who, who's doing all the opting? And if it's just one group of people doing all the opting, um, or one group never does the opting, that's, that's not diversity. That's just power structures being called something else. Well, I, th- I think you're getting towards uh, something that jumped out to me in the essay. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that you also had 
the trainees in mind, people going through this this pathway and struggling in their own ways. And as you know, I mean, I've been involved in academia, diversity, equity, inclusion work for a while too. One thing that struck me from what you wrote is I feel like for some, you know, for time and with institutions too, there's this idea of we want to do something to impact diversity. So let's just bring in people. Let's, if we can change the makeup of the people who are there, then we have achieved something. We've moved the needle on diversity. Um, and then maybe you, you advance past that a little bit and you start to think about, okay, well, we also need to make sure, sure these people we're bringing in are also, they're leaving with a degree or their the retention is good or something like that. Uh, but, but one thing you mentioned I thought was really insightful and maybe the most important thing that I have not seen addressed very much within academia, even among people doing diversity work. And, and you said, uh, this is a quote, uh, the point of promoting diversity isn't simply to have differently colored bodies coexisting in the lab, but to ensure everyone can show up and contribute as their full selves. And I thought that was just such an important and great uh, sentiment. And so could you talk a little more about why that matters, not just to the individuals themselves uh, being able to contribute, but also the science community more broadly? Yeah, uh, thank you for that. I'll actually go read the next sentence, right? Because I think, you know, without a culture of inclusion and equity, diversity can represent another form of oppression and exclusion, which is a hard word, but I think it's true in the sense that what's the point? What's the point of me showing up with my whole lived experience, if I can't actually bring that experience to bear, um, it's not helpful. And everybody has a lived experience that they bring to bear. Some of those lived experiences are more normative to the space of science, right? It can be very basic stuff, like, (laughs) you know, talk about grad school. When you think about, like, let's have a party. What counts as a party? Because for me, a party is not a lot of people with the lights on drinking beer and then talking about our work. You know, there was more. I was like, oh, this is different. And then what music would be on, right? I like Bon Jovi. It's cool. <laughs> it wasn't a thing I listened to normally, right? And so you're like, oh, we're listening to Bon Jovi and Journey. So that's a culture. That's a cultural thing, right? And you just got to recognize that. The idea of even going drinking, that's a cultural thing, right? It, there are some cultures where people don't drink. So I think... It's just important that, you know, if I think about 100%, if we all have 100% brain space to contribute, right? If I'm spending 10, 20, 30, 40% of my brain space on making sure I'm adhering to some social norm. And again, there are some types of norms that are necessary, but a lot there are a lot of ones that aren't necessary, right? Like we have coupled the practice of science, which is rigorous inquiry, with the practices of the people who have had traditionally done science, who are white identified, male, Anglo, middle class, able bodied, usually heterosexual, right? So those are one set of cultural practices which are fine. They're just not normative, right? And if we say that we have to imp- not just be a person who can do rigorous inquiry, but then you must also adhere to a social standard that is not your own. And by doing that, you have to strip out all the things that are most meaningful to you. That's a problem, right? One of the papers that I uh, first wrote in this space was on the importance of values. And that gave me clear language. So this is the idea of what's important to you 
as a decision maker, as you're making your own decision, right? And people value all sorts of things. Some people value scientific inquiry above all, including the health of their families. Some people value their health of their families above all, and then work is subordinate to that. And some people value, you know, community impact and all that kind of work, right? But if I say, hey, because it's America, right? And so there's still a podcast I listen to, Code Switch, says housing segregation and everything, right? So we we tend to live separately, right? And because you tend to live separately, you tend to attune to different things in life. Um, and so if you say, hey, there's a problem that I see in my community, and even thinking about the molecular impacts of stress, <laughs> um, social stress, and that that's a, that's a valid question and a valid thing to study and a valid perspective that I want to be able to bring my work to my community. If you don't feel that you can, if you don't feel that you can express yourself, then in the context of having choice, you people will always choose their values. And so if you, if you set up a system where you, it feels like people have to choose against their values, people will choose out of that system in the context of having choice, right? I recognize that we're all the most privileged people on the planet because you get to choose what you do for a living. Most people never get to choose that in the history of the planet. That said, even within our set of privileged and highly educated people, there are still there's still hierarchies, right? And things that are that are happening. And so I think that's the importance is like, let me not use, let me use my brain space on the science, right? And existing, and instead of how do I exist in a manner that particularly me as a black man, I'm, you're socialized very early to make sure that people don't think of you as threatening because threatening black man is often a dead black man, right? Um, and so you're like, okay, I had to spend my soul, I had to spend some of my energy just presenting in a manner that people don't feel threatened by me which is interesting. Then on top of all that, I have to get on top of all these other, these other social norms of a dominant group, which are fine, but they're just, it's a way to exist, right? It's not better or worse per se. Um, every culture has its glories and blind spots. And so, yeah, I think we want to really make sure that we're not saying, hey, look, we have you here, but we're not actually hearing you um, because that just represents oppression and window dressing. You know, trot me out. Make make it make yourselves feel good. That you got a couple of brown faces, and then keep it shuffling through. Yeah, and, and you know, you talked about uh, you kind of went on to to talk about the the importance of the science community and institutions. Listening was one of the things that you specifically called out that you know we could do a better job of. But that wasn't the only thing. You know, there was listening, but then also acknowledging and acting that you mentioned were all really important to make science being more inclusive, being more affirming as an environment. So, you know, you talked about this at the beginning, you've been in the science world, you've been swimming around in the science water for a while, about 20 years or so. And I think we're about the same age. So I think we're both getting older. I think I have more gray in my beard, in my Corona beard than you do. There you go. Yeah. You just can't, you can't, you can't really see it. But there's a fair amount coming Zoom, in. Zoom's not yeah. picking it up. Yeah, Zoom's uh, not picking it up. It's actually quite nice because I'm every time I look in the mirror, I say, "Man, who is that guy?" But okay. <laughs> I'm curious how, in all that time that you've been in the science community in different ways, obviously from you know being a an undergrad, then a grad student, and the postdoc, and then uh, in the scientific workforce. Has there been any progress in any of these areas and the ability of institutions, individuals, uh, the portion of individuals you've interacted with over that time? Uh, I guess progress in any of these areas, any of these abilities to to listen to you and your friends and your colleagues who are from racial groups uh, or from groups that aren't 
in the majority in the scientific workforce of seeing more listening, seeing more acknowledgement of you and who you are. Have you, have you seen, I guess, advancement or any progress at all? So I'll answer that question in a second. I'll answer where we had clear progress, right? And so I think as a system, we've had clear progress as it relates to numbers and percent of degrees at the undergrad level and even at the PhD level going to Black, Latino, Latina, American Indian, Alaska Native, et cetera, underrepresented, pop, underrepresented racial ethnic groups getting degrees. Are we where we want to be? No. Have we made real progress? Yes, right? And a paper I published a few years ago showed at the PhD level has basically been exponential growth since 1980, right? Um, and the number of PhDs that have gone to scientists from historically underrepresented racial and ethnic groups. So that's one piece where we've made progress. I see now we have a lot more diversity offices, communities, those sorts of things. Those are all positive. Where we haven't necessarily made progress, right? Oftentimes, and again, it just, it depends on the context, but what are you trying to accomplish? And do you have a person in a diversity role that is then, it's their job to fix everything? Because that doesn't lead to success. Do they actually have authority to manage the things that they're being tasked with fixing? If they don't have authority to manage the things they're being tasked with fixing, you're largely setting them up to fail. An area where I'm not quite clear that we've had as much progress is this listening, acknowledging, and acting. And so by that, I mean, listening. So I mentioned earlier, I'm getting all these invites to speak at universities about this. And for life and self-care management, I'm saying no. no I, I love to engage. I just only have so much capacity given the COVID and the children. <laughs> but what I ask people- In that order, they, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> when people ask me, I was like, well, have you actually talked to your own students and postdocs in faculty and diversity professionals. Oh, well, we need somebody else to say it. Well, that means you're not listening, <laughs> right? Like, because, you know, particularly when I was publishing more in this area, I give talks and they say, okay, how do we fix it? And I said, what I can give you are generalizable principles from talking to people across the country, a lot of different institutions. It'll particularize in different manners, depending on where you are, right? Maybe you have a different, maybe there's something for all underrepresented students, maybe you have a particular issue with black students, maybe you have a particular issue with Hispanic, Latino, Latino, Latinx students, or indigenous students, right? And so I think I haven't seen as much of that, now that I also work at NIH currently, so I'm not on an institution's campus, right? And so I'm just saying the things that that I've seen, and when I ask people if they've done, like, what have they done of their own work, and who of the professionals they have, have they consulted? Because if you're going out 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 of house, when it's like, well, I have these people that I know, some of them I fund at your institution (laughs) or doing work uh, or in the portfolios that I manage that are at your institution that are doing this work. So if you're not listening to them and listen to your own students, uh, that's a, that's a challenge. Really interesting aside, one of the invites I had that I wasn't, I was pondering, it was, you know, talk to the faculty and then talk to the students. And then I was like, well, I'm pondering it. I'm busy. You don't have to talk to the students. You can just talk to the faculty. I'm like, well, (laughs) I was like, I think the students need me more, honestly, um, because they're in the system. That's even less important. Yeah. I was like, you know, I I think the things I prioritize, the things I've done have have been prioritizing students or trainees reaching out to me because I think they benefit more, frankly. I mean, it's a different kind of benefit. It's just sort of because the challenge is that they have the least amount of permanence and power at the institution. So you need to talk to people who have permanence and power 
but I've been talking for the last, you know, 15 years about this stuff. <laughs> and so I was like, why are you only listening right now? So um, that said, you know, I am seeing more of these, you know, I've seen some at different institutions as it relates to faculty clusters to enhance diversity, different programs that basically replicate the structures that exist for certain groups already, right? And so when I talk about diversity programs, the only thing we're fixing is a challenge in the system, right? The system has a number of ways it exists. The The defect is not in the people. It's in the system that's that's unable to actually, <laughs> we have to create a new pathway um, because the current pathways are just not working for large groups of people, no matter how much they achieve in this, in this space. So yeah, I don't know, but I, you know, it's 2020. So we've had this great, you know, racial awakening, as I call it. And so people have asked different kinds of questions than I've gotten over the last few years. So I think that's positive. And now we need to maintain momentum because as is often the case in America, when there is progress, there is often backlash. And so I just encourage people to keep up that same June energy that everybody had. Mm-hmm. June 2020 being when the video of George Floyd's killing was viral and people were wretched at a particular level about that in this America in 2020, you can be kneeled on for not doing anything worthy of death, similarly killed mm-hmm. on the street, crying out for your mother, right? A 46-year-old man or 40-something-year-old man crying out for his mother, which is, I don't watch the videos, I can't because I need to be able to exist in the world. Mm-hmm. But I, I heard like five seconds of that on the radio and that gutted me in and of itself, right? So this is a long way of saying <laughs> we have built infrastructure that has allowed us to have more students enter and progress through. There is more attention being paid than I've seen previously. We need to turn that into action and then into accountability where it's an important part of your job that you do this. And if you're not, doing this, whatever this is, that is part and parcel of you not actually completing your full job. Yeah. And where do you, where do you see those accountability structures at, let's just say consequences for failing to meet accountability? Where where do you see those coming from at the institutional level, uh, you know, from departments, from chairs, uh, or from funder, you know, from the funder's level, you know, NIH, NSF foundations, uh, the ones giving funding. I'd say all of the above. Um, it's interesting, and I might sound like a homer here. I don't mean to, right? In terms of because I work at NIH, I see all the things that I see many things that we do, and have ideas about man, maybe management might we might make changes to further enhance these goals. I also see a lot of the sentiment from the external community of, "Well, just make us do it." And I was like, <laughs> "You don't have. We don't have to actually make you do these things, right? Like you all actually." Hire your own faculty. We pay a lot of them off our research project grants, but you actually hire a lot of them. So it's just this interesting thing because oftentimes it's like NIH is being heavy handed. And then it's like, please make us do it, NIH. And so it becomes interesting. But I think as it relates to what things NIH has done at the training level, particularly institutional training grants, NIGMS, uh, where our work has done this, is that uh, we have reworked our expectations and review criteria to very clearly focus on make sure you have plans for cultures of inclusion, safe and inclusive environments for research, supportive environments, mentor training, that you have robust plans in place to recruit and then support trainees from a wide diversity of backgrounds. And, you know, to the plans that if the plan isn't adequate, 
it is not adequately backed up, then the grant does less well. It doesn't get funded or gets funded at fewer slots being very technical. NIH will give money to an institution like UNC to say, fund 10 geneticists a year. And the genetics department comes up with a plan that just that that peer reviewers say this is not meeting the standard. We can say, okay, we won't fund that or we'll fund five until we see evidence (laughs) of a better attention to this. Right. And so that's been a quite effective tool through time saying, just in the same manner that if you are a genetics program and you don't have the core genetics courses and the core competencies that a person with genetics training should have, we say, no, that's not a program that we should fund because it's not an excellent training environment. An excellent training, an environment that can't support students from a wide variety of backgrounds is not an excellent training environment, no matter how many Nobel laureates you have there. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think that's been a piece that we've taken a leadership role in, we being NIGMS and our director, John Lorst, and division director, Dr. Allison Gammy. I've contributed as well. But I think that's one piece that's been good. NIH, other things that we've done recently, uh, we have a new program called Mosaic, Maximizing Opportunities for Scientific and Academic Independent Careers. And so what this is saying is that we know there are awards called K Awards, K99s, which help people to transition from their PhD uh, to independent positions. We also know that the diversity of the people in those awards has just been bad over the last 10 plus years that it's existed. And then even when you have this award, which says you come with money from NIH, the rate of transition of black scientists is you know about a third less than those of white scientists. So we create a new structure. We have K program to promote diversity, focus on people who have a strong and demonstrated commitment to advancing diversity in science. And then we're also pairing them um, in cohorts in scientific societies. Um, and so again, that's a way that we're saying, hey, folks exist and I manage that program, right? And so the question is, well, will you get enough applicants? It's like, yes, there are plenty of applicants, right? Oh, my inbox is out of control and then <laughs> the number of people reaching out. And so that's another way of saying, hey, here's a mechanism that exists. And then from the Common Fund, which is a trans-NIH initiative, is a new program called FIRST that um, has been announced. I'm not sure if the funding announcements are out, but essentially that is thinking about cluster hires at institutions around promoting uh, sustainable transformation for diversity. So those are some things that we have done as the National Institute of Health. Again, I think that institutions can do a lot. You have trainees there. I mean, think creatively, right? If the paths don't work, create new paths. If you see a promising third-year graduate student from a from a you know background that's not well represented in your space is doing well, instead of saying, okay, let's do three more years here, then I'll send you away for six years to postdoc, and then you can just you know rough shot it, see what happens. Why don't you create a pathway for them, right? With a lot of these junior fellows programs that exist, create the pathway. I say this because I have seen all degrees of creativity um, in academia when we want to achieve something, right? And so you want to hire a person, spouse needs a job. They find, they, <laughs> Somehow position, there's a way. Somehow, there's a position. The positions yeah. emerge, right? And so I think we just have to say plainly what happens, which is why I've been saying a lot very recently that we just need the same things, right? If we have the same opportunities, same access to resources, same respect, we will have the same outcomes. Maybe even better because we've had to traverse a lot of things to get there. I think it's clear that we often do not get the same opportunities, don't get the same access, don't get the same respect, and then are blamed when we have different outcomes. And it's just like, no, just if we have the same outcomes, we if we got the same resources, we get the same outcomes, right? It's very clear to many of us in underrepresented communities that we are not getting the same. And so, yeah, but I, I want to 
lean on institutions to do what they can do. And here's an example. I grew to the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. It's known for a program called the Meyerhoff Scholarship Program. It's the top producer of Black students who go on to get PhDs from predominantly white institution. That was not an NIH-funded program <laughs> when it started, right? There's private philanthropy. NIH now supports part of that program through our MARC or, or URISE grants. I, I'm not recalling the exact mechanism, but that's the thing that with institutional leadership and other commitment, they were able to create a structure that has changed the institution and actually been a model for across the country. Lots of things. You're at UNC. Their program's Moorhead. Like, there are lots of things that institutions do that do not require <laughs> the NIH making them do it. And so use that same energy, that same creativity. Use some of the funds from indirect cost recovery <laughs> to reinvest in um, your own institution as it relates to these issues. And I, and I get that it, it's hard times and people are cash strapped, particularly because folks aren't on campus and the economics of things are impacted by COVID, but this is a longstanding issue. And this is actually the opportunity to say, as we're, as we are remaking our model, let's remake it with equity in mind. Yeah, I think, I think that's great. And, and I'm glad you brought up the, the Meyerhoff program as an example. Um, Certainly I'm familiar at UNC, the uh, Chancellor Science Scholars Mm -hmm. Program at Penn State similarly Mm -hmm. uh, really looked to and partnered with the, the Meyerhoff program to help try to, to recreate that at, our own institutions, and and that was um, in the absence of of big federal uh, donors. It was really the institution putting aside the funds and prioritizing that. And can I just, I just let me just interrupt really quickly, right? Because I think the importance is you say you're trying to recreate it at your own institution, and I think that's the that's the importance of listening locally, right? Because UMBC, UNC, Penn State, I know they're doing some of these things that the UCs on the West Coast. They aren't the same institution, so they, each of your institutions has different strengths limitations right and so you have some generalizable principle but you got to listen locally right if and if you're not listening locally locally and particularly right because sometimes we have this generalized diversity that if you're not a white heterosexual able-bodied anglo middle-class male then you are diverse and people are not diverse of course but everybody who's not one of those identifies with that set of demographics is then diverse and then we'll do some generalized solution for diversity and that is not you know that's not the answer um and so i just want to echo that point. But as you said, you are able to, when we want to move forward, absent a federal mandate. Yeah. And I think sometimes I, I cringe a little bit at the term best practices. Oh yeah. Because, you know, well, it, it's sort of like, well, I'm sharing, here's some ideas that worked for us with our people and our students and our culture and our environment and all these other variables that we couldn't possibly quantify. And you can't always, I think the desire sometimes from others is I want to just pick that up and set that down where I am with totally different people in a different mm-hmm. place and hope that it works. And even with science and medicine, right? We know that like with just medicine, there are things called contraindications, right? So there's some, some reasons that you're like, Oh, this is generally a good thing. I'm an immunologist. I stand hard for vaccines, right? People should get them generally. They're largely safe. Right. And there are people who are contraindicated. So you're like, Oh, this wouldn't actually be, be bad for you to get this. Very small number of people, right? But um, I think it's the idea that you have to actually look at your particular context and there are some some interactions that happen, right? But yeah, I go with evidence-informed practices because I've evidence-informed practices as opposed to best practices. I I similarly cringe when I hear it. Well, and it goes back to what you said. We need to look locally and talk to our own populations, our own groups, our own people, our own students. And that should be almost the priority of what is informing our decision-making as we're instituting 
programs or ideas or, or processes. So this, this has all been great, Kenny. I thank you so much for giving so much of your time. These are all great things for you know for me to think about. I know I'm fortunate. I've heard you talk about some of these things before, which are, which is exactly why I wanted to have you on the show. And I think for a lot of our listeners, this will be the first they've heard from you and, and heard some of these ideas. But the last thing, something I always like to, to ask our guests when they come on the show, especially those who have been through this training process and are kind of looking at it from a different vantage point now that you're out in the workforce, and especially somebody like like you who's really invested in making the workforce better for those coming through it now and who will come through it. So what advice do you have to our listeners who are out there going through the the graduate training process right now? A couple points. One, you're awesome and you belong, <laughs> right? Because it's hard in research. Um, I was actually talking to an undergrad mentor of mine and who brought up this point. He's like, it's called research for a reason. If it worked all the time, it just be like called search. So you'd search, you'd find, and you'd be done. So, but it's research. So you search and you search again and you search again. <laughs> and I think because there is so much failure as a natural part of experimenting, you can begin to think that you're a failure. And that's not the case, right? You belong. So I just want to set that down. Then two, there are so many opportunities for you. Again, it can be hard to see, particularly if you're a third or fourth year grad student. I say, I'm in the tunnel. I don't see the light from where I came in. I don't see the light at the end of it. So I'm just, I'm in the darkness, disoriented. Um, But there are lots of opportunities. So just keep pushing, right? We need you. Science needs you. All of us, and particularly those of us from underrepresented groups who are often told that we don't belong there, right? Like, we need you. Keep going. And when I say keep going, keep going forward in the things that you were interested in doing, right? If it's clear that you want to contribute a different manner, great. I contribute outside of academia. I think of myself as having a, a you know <laughs> happy life and a good career. But there are lots of ways to contribute. And then finally, my mother's advice was always do not self-eliminate. So you can repeat with me, Josh. Say, don't self-eliminate. Do not self-eliminate. Exactly. Make people tell you no. Don't don't say, oh, they wouldn't, they they wouldn't give it to me. Because you don't know, right? I frequently just put myself forward for opportunities and by doing that, I've ended up where I am at a point in my career that's relatively earlier than many people um, at the same stage, right? And so, don't go for it. Don't self-eliminate. Make people tell you no, and they might often tell you yes, and then you you, you can find other opportunities. So, those are those are a couple of parting parting pieces of advice. That's great. Well, Kenny, thanks again for being here. It's always a pleasure to hang out with you and talk to you, and I'm looking forward to the day that. I go somewhere that's not my house and I see you in person. Hey, I look forward to seeing you too when that's safe to do. (laughs) (laughs) All right, cool, Kenny. Take it easy, man. All right, man. All right, Dan, that was my interview with uh, Kenny Gibbs. Two things. Worth the wait to talk to him and we should not have waited so long to talk to him. Uh, it, It was just, it was so wonderful to hear his voice. I mean, we've read his articles for several years and he has been involved in improving graduate training and advancing diversity in in the sciences for a long time. So we have followed his work. But uh, to be able to hear him tell the story himself, it it was just fantastic. And uh, yeah, we should not have waited so long. It, It is so fantastic to hear Dr. Gibbs, Kenny, because we have followed his work for a number of years. You'll remember way back in episode 40, this was in 2016, 
uh, many years ago. Over 100 episodes ago. (laughs) 100 episodes ago, we talked about his article uh, in an episode we called The Three Keys to Success in Graduate School. I mean, he has been working on graduate education and improving training uh, diversity for a long time. And so we spoke to each other about something he wrote, but this is the first time that we've gotten to hear him talk about his work. And and it's been too long, Josh. I'm really excited that we've got him on the show. Absolutely. And would certainly recommend folks who, you know, want to hear more from from Dr. Gibbs and and learn more about his work. You can search his name and he has authored several studies on various aspects of diversity in academia and of career paths and science training in general. So highly recommend uh, folks look up, look up his work. Uh, But a few thoughts, Dan, as, as I was listening back uh, to, to this interview, that, that really struck me, and and I think I mentioned this when I, when I was talking to Kenny doing the interview, but I thought this this notion that I'm going to keep with me uh, moving forward is the importance of people being in a space, ab- not just being in a space, but being able to participate fully as their whole selves. I think that is uh, really key, and maybe the most important thing. And 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 I was just reflecting on how. That is an area where we in academic science, maybe in academia in general, have really fallen behind where maybe we've done an okay job at having initiatives and having programs and being mindful of bringing in people from traditionally underrepresented groups. And so they're there, but we haven't put a lot of thought or intention into making sure they're able to fully participate and not forcing them to acclimate to some some culture that's been dominated by this presence of only a majority group for for so long. And and it made me think that if we're not if we're not making sure people can be their whole selves, then who are we benefiting by having them there? And then it almost it almost feels like their presence is just to benefit us in the majority group if we're not going to take the effort to allow them to be there as, as their whole selves hearing him talk about the amount of self-monitoring that he had to do and has to do as an African-American man in a white space. He has to make sure he doesn't come across as threatening or or some other stereotype about how he might be as a black man. I have not in my life, there have been a, a, a very small handful of times that I have been in a group of people where I was the minority among those people. But the amount of, of self-monitoring, of paying attention to the fact of uh, all of the cues that maybe I didn't get or the, the way the language is expressed that I didn't understand or, or whatever the factors are. It takes so much energy. It takes so much of your frontal cortex to monitor yourself in a space where you don't feel like you fit and that you will not be accepted because of, of how you are or who you are. I remember almost nothing about those experiences except feeling nervous and to go through an entire graduate training program where you've got to keep that in the back burner, you've got to keep it in your mind that this music that, you know, he mentioned music or uh, this is, this is how we socialize or this is how people talk about the news or whatever it is. That is so much overhead that should be devoted to being creative and being given to your science. Basically. I don't, I mean, I don't know that that is easily fixed. But I think beginning to recognize that culturally we are creating spaces that have a default mode and that it is not as if what is normal to me is normal to everybody. 
just starting to recognize that, I think, is a step in the right direction. I think there's a lot more work we need to do. You know, and those cultural norms that might be normal for you or normal for me, they aren't, nece- they aren't necessary for science. You know, they aren't necessarily the way science needs to be. And I loved how he described how, okay, there's science inquiry, right? And that's sort of like the important part. But some of these, some of these ways we've dressed up <laughs> the culture of science really... Their practices, their fashions, yeah. E- exactly. They're not necessary for, for doing science. Or, and in a lot of cases, maybe they're not even the best for, for doing science. And science is hard enough and grad school is hard enough without that overhead, that, that mental overhead, that cultural code switching that's required. And it made me think of, you mentioned, Dan, recognizing there haven't been a lot of times where maybe you've been the minority in a group of people. And as I reflect back over my work for the last 10 or 11 years, I feel very fortunate for the opportunities that that has given me, you know, working as a program director in a diversity initiative. Often the students I'm working with are students from racial or ethnic backgrounds different from mine. Um, It influences the type of conferences I go to, the type of people I interact with who are very different than people that I ever interacted with, um, at least aside from one person here or there through my grad school and postdoc training. And I recognize, you know, I realize that my viewpoints, my worldview, um, the way I just the way I see other human beings has been fundamentally changed by those experiences that I've been able to have, um, which really I've been fueled by being around a lot of people who are different than me, who are from backgrounds different than me. And I guess a scary thought I had, I don't know if, if scary is the right word, but starting my postdoc, my career goal at that time was to be a PI. I wanted to start my own lab and uh, be a PI at a university. And at some point I quickly decided that wasn't really what I wanted to do. And I took an exit ramp and ended up where I am now, which has been great. But I think about what if there was a this parallel universe where um, I didn't make that right turn and I would have gone on and become a PI, become a faculty member at an institution somewhere. I'd be running my own lab. I'd be 10 years in by now. I'd probably have tenure. And I think about all those experiences I've had that I wouldn't have had, but yet I would be in this power position overseeing other students, um, overseeing or at least contributing to the culture of my department, of my institution, without these formative experiences of being around a lot of people who look different than me and from backgrounds different than me. And I'm really afraid that I would be part of the problem, not because I am a bad, I mean, I'm me, right? But not because I'm the same person, but not because I'm a bad person, but because I never was in situations where I was around enough people different than me that I experienced people being people different than me being their whole selves. And so I think that really reinforces the importance of one, having plenty of people from different groups uh, that are representative of the people who exist in our world, in our country, in our state, in our communities. But not just having them there because we we have striven for something called quote unquote diversity, but having that diversity of experience and of opinion and of culture and of how we practice science. I think that is also what, what you would add to that. That That's what uh, Dr. Gibbs was talking about. Yeah. And, you know, he mentioned the experience he had as a, as a postdoc at Stanford where he was the only black man in his building who 
you know, wasn't a gender or technician or a mailman or something like that. And I think that's how we have experienced, I think that's how we experienced diversity through our training was we knew a person here, a person there, uh, but ultimately they were in our space, right? In our cultural comfort zone. Yeah. Having the makeup of our scientific spaces look like our community spaces and, and not be fundamentally different. Yeah, it was fun for me to hear the end of your conversation because you two found a way to totally wonk out on this topic with uh, the various program names and the funding mechanisms and the <laughs> ways to to make this happen. And the way it happens is through policy in many cases, but also through changing people's beliefs and values. And so it, it, it's both prongs of that approach, but it was encouraging to me to hear that you two knew all the levers to pull and the bureaucracy to make it happen. Absolutely. And so that's what we're going to continue to try to do on, on this show. Listen and promote ideas like Kenny's, these important voices that need to be heard and need to be amplified. I learned a lot today and I hope that you all did too. If you have a question or a topic idea for a future show, we'd love to hear it. You can email us podcast at hellophd.com. Send us a tweet at hellophd. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting platform. We love the feedback. If you want to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, click the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the beer money, and thanks to the ongoing support from all of our patrons. Josh, I look forward to the fall. I look forward to talking to you more about this. I look forward to talking to you more about all the things that relate to science. Uh, and thank you for picking up this beer. It was it was a surprise, but it was good. I enjoyed it. I would drink this one again. I might pick up more of these for the fall. It's a good fall beer. Good fall beer. All right, Josh, well, we will see you next time with another good fall beer. <laughs> all right, Dan. See you later. Hello, PhD. Is it me you're looking for? I have lots of real good data. I can make some more.